Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 12. However, like modern feminist, Ovid sees the immediate victims, or at least those that his own experience and predilections encouraged him to identify with, he sees a certain set of victims and defines the problem exclusively in terms of that victim. <clears throat> and then, now, this is, this is what we always do almost, not to do that. It's almost impossible not to do that. We must, I think we should try to do something bigger and more important than that. But nevertheless, and it's not unimportant, that, that attempt is not an unimportant attempt. It has some value. But, for example, when, when Marx comes along and he sees the problem from the point of view of the proletariat and defines the whole cultural problem, the whole historical problem, in terms of this struggle on the part of the victimized proletariat against the victimizing capitalist economic system or something to that effect, you see there's, there's truth in that. But it's a truth that's taken Heresy means a truth that it, it, it presumes to be bigger than it really is. It doesn't. It's not a. It's not something that's false. It's a truth that's taken out of its context and and made into something bigger than it really is. And I think Marx is a classic example of that. In the in the fifties and sixties, some of us, I can say us here, uh, defined the whole problem in terms of race. The problem is that these uh, the 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 white race has taken over the world and is enslaving others and so on. And there's certainly a truth to that. But if one defines the whole problem in those terms, then one doesn't really see the real issue. I think the feminists in our time have done exactly the same thing. It's a valid criticism, but to define the whole thing in, in terms of that particular victim is, it has severe limitations. The, what Christianity does is that it gives to us for our intimate identification the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. Not the most recent victim uh, or the victim that our own experience has uh, encouraged us to identify with or inclined us to identify with, but the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. And if we identify with the lamb slain since the foundation of the world or to the extent that we do, then we begin to see these structures, these sacrificial structures, in all of their manifestations. Uh, and it, it may take a little bit of the bounce out of our step politically because if, if one only sees one, one category of victim, then one can launch with great zeal into this campaign to victimize the victimizers. And it's very satisfying and so on. And if one sees this problem as the human condition, coming up inside me as well as all around me, uh, then one is less inclined and less able to seize upon some ideology and charge into the, into the fray on its basis. You see what I'm saying? Okay, uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is that Ovid is like us in that he has seen the perversity of the system. Now, I would argue, you see... I've been. This is what happens to me every week. Browdy is doing this to me. He takes. He makes me get up and go to my bookshelf and 
pull out these things and start to read them again. And last week I did that with the Aeneid, and I thought, oh, I want to teach this again. And this week I've been reading Ovid, and I think it's fabulous. But I would say that Ovid is a kind of deconstructor. He's, he's ironic. He mocks. He makes fun of these gods. He says, oh, they're just like we are, only worse because they're more impudent. And so he mocks them. And he thinks of himself as an anti-ideologue. I mean, he, these are not terms he would use. But if you interviewed Ovid when he's writing the Metamorphoses, he would probably say, well, Virgil was an ideologue, and I don't believe all that bunk. The truth is, though, that Ovid is more of an ideologue than Virgil because Ovid is ironic. That Ovid doesn't really care. He just wants to debunk. He's marvelous because debunkers can, be, can really produce incredible things. I mean, Nietzsche produced just unbelievable things, you know. Uh, so he's marvelous in the way he does, but he thinks that he's not an ideologue, but he's more of an ideologue than Virgil because Virgil, in a sense, saw that it was important to turn the bad fame that we talked about last week, the fama that destroys everything, into good fame, the fame of the great hero who accomplishes great things for the, for the benefit of all, it's very important to convert bad fame into good fame, which is just a parallel to Heraclitus's the violence that destroys and the violence that creates. Uh, Virgil thought it was very good to do that, and he strove to do that, even though he understood that the whole enterprise was based on a falsehood. He knew that, and it's in his poem. And so, in a sense, he understands everything that Ovid understands, but he's much more discreet because he understands how severe the crisis will be if the, the sense of transcendence and the hierarchy that's, that's based on it is lost. And that's, I think, a, I think that's something. Because one of the things about Ovid is that he, has, he seems to have no idea what kind, of, what kind of chaos the world he's describing is headed toward. Now, first of all, the name of Ovid's major work is the metamorphoses. Everything is there in that name. Because what Ovid is describing is the collapse of transcendence and the psychological instability that occurs as a result. His poem is a long catalog of stories about ontological and psychological instability fickleness, transitions, constant transitions, no, no firm, you know, when, uh, when um, Henri de Lubac says we, we moderns lack ontological density or when Gabriel Marcel says we moderns have lost our ontological moorings. He's speaking of a world in which suddenly we are ontologically fickle. We, we're, we, pick up on one thing and then on another. And, and we've, when Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, we would say, I live now, not I, but what day is it? Tuesday? must be so-and-so lives in me. You see? So that's just to mention the name of the poem is Metamorphoses, which is a story about how what we thought was substantial, an entity, is not an entity. And this is a big, this is another reason why this is a, a distant mirror, because 
we moderns think that the, that the self, the subject, is an entity, an objective entity all by itself. But you don't find any of that in the, in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about a self that's an entity. It talks about a, a, a prophet who is who's speaking because of his intimate relationship with his God. It's talking about, it's, it tells about Paul who says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. It, it tells about Jesus who says, I and the Father are one. It doesn't talk about entities. So Brady says, the metamorphosis is Ovid's epic. If the Aeneid is its model, which it probably is, it is a strange epic indeed. For its binding theme is not the Virgilian virtues of unflinching duty and piety, but an unceasing change that Ovid defines as the nature of history. In other words, here's it's just like the deconstructors. Everything is in flux. Browdy says, and the, you, you get the parallel with modern deconstruction when Browdy says, at the center of time for Ovid stands not the Virgilian ruler of destiny and a history, but a different sort of poet, an impresario of changes and a master of shifting perspective, end quote, and an ironic one. There's a pattern in, the, in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And the pattern is this. Here's what Browdy says, quote, in the general pattern, a god disguises himself, usually as a normal man, and pursues a beautiful nymph who escapes by turning into some part of nature, a tree, a flower, or a stream. Well, there are a couple of things to note about this pattern. One is, it's a pattern in which sex and violence, the line between sex and violence is beginning to blur. That's a very important symptom. Of, a, of the crisis. And another is that the distinction between mortals and gods is blurring. The gods have taken an interest in the mortals. They've decided to go slumming, you see. They come down because there's some very beautiful women. You know, it's like going some... Uh, it's, it's like the, the Secretary of State disguising himself and showing up at some at some shady discotheque because there's these beautiful... So, the, so it's important to notice that this distinction, which is the source of all hierarchy between the sacred and the profane, begins to break down. And Ovid is just mocking it because Ovid's message is if these gods exist, which they probably don't, they're not only as bad as we are, they're worse. So they deserve no respect. And he's right. But he do, I just don't think he understands what would happen without some sense of transcendence, as bad as these gods are. Now, what Ovid says is that the, the, the destruction of transcendence begins on Olympus when the Olympians decide to come dallying in the mortal affairs. Now, this is, is going to become curiouser and curiouser here, but... I've tried to argue in the last earlier weeks and really earlier months in some of those earlier series we've done on this. I've tried to argue, and I want to come back to this in more detail too, but I've tried to argue that uh, hysteria, what we call hysteria, is the quintessential uh, reaction to the mimetic crisis. Hysteria, as, as I use the term, means 
a reaction against the influence of the other. The other's influence has begun to have, is, has begun to rob me of my own identity. And it's an influence that I want to ward off. You see, when Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, there's an influence there. He doesn't want to ward it off. He's, he spends his life in prayer hoping it'll happen, you see, welcoming it. But were he to wake up tomorrow morning and realize, I live now, not I, but somebody else lives in me, he would become a hysteric. You see, he would say, I gotta, how do I ward off this influence of this other that's breaking in on me? Well, in a world where there's no transcendence, where the where where our religiosity has suddenly begun to spill out into our into ordinary human affairs, we are all in kind of transference relationships to each other. What what Freud calls the transference relationship. That's to say we infect each other in a very profound way, or at least we can. We're we're open to that sort of thing. And and there's no ordering of that process. It can happen and it depends on how how vulnerable and 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 at the moment weak or uh, are, uh, are shaky of any particular psychological arrangement might be or psychological adaptation. There are lots, there are infinite variables, of course. But in, in general, I would say hysteria is, is the quintessential modern symptom, which is quite interesting because it's what gives rise to psychoanalysis. Everybody who studied the history of psychoanalysis says psychoanalysis is a response to hysteria. And that's how Freud started it, Freud and Brewer and so on. So here's the irony. And then by you know the middle of the 20th century, hysteria is declared as no longer in, in existence. There is none anymore. It's gone. We don't know where it went. We, it's a disease we've had around for 4,000 years, and suddenly it's gone. So what do we make of that? And my, I mean, I want to do some more work on that, but I think it's not gone at all. I think low-level chronic versions of it are everywhere. That's, the, that's what we suffer from is hysteria. The fascination with one another the attempt to ward off the other's influence, the attempt always to assert one's own individuality in order to disprove the fact that, I, that, that I'm being in, in, uh, affected mimetically by others and so on. Well, I mention that because <clears throat> there are two very prominent, and I'm overgeneralizing. That's what I do. I overgeneralize. That's part of my calling. Uh, so, uh, but... Uh, uh, there are two, two uh, major forms of hysteria. You could, one would be a defensive and one would be an offensive sort of approach to the problem. The defensive approach is to go emotionally, psychologically, physically comatose in a way, to shut down, some kind of shutting down of the system, a kind of... Uh, autism, in which suddenly you have hysterical blindness, hysterical deafness, hysterical paralysis, a kind of closing off so that the other can't get in. You see what I mean? It's a way of sealing off the senses from the, from the incursion that's threatening. And I'll get to the second kind later. Now, think about what I'm suggesting is that Ovid is describing something very like the modern crisis in which the the vanishing of transcendence has produced a mimetic crisis. And a symptom of that is that the, that the figures from the sacred world are now chasing the figures from the 
profane world around. The gods are coming down and chasing mortals. Uh, and the dif distinction between sex and violence is breaking down and so on. Now, Braddy says what many people said. The pattern is the god comes down, chases a mortal, and she, turn she turns or is turned into a tree or a stream or something inanimate. Now just think of the metaphor of turning into something inanimate as a protection against the other that's, that's pursuing. You see, that's, the, that's, that's sort of type A hysteria. The hysteria of, of autism, shutting down, petrifying. So for example, here, this is from Ovid. This is the famous story of Apollo, Phoebus Apollo, chasing Daphne, lusting after Daphne. And here's how in the A.E. Watts translation Ovid has it. He nears and nears, he has her, has her not, with nose thrust out, he sniffs her heels, the prey, though seeming caught and eaten, slips away. So Phoebus followed and so fled the maid, but swifter he with wings of love to aid. He gives no pause, his hope outspeeds her fear, he crowds her close, his breath is on her hair. This is the moment of panic, you see. The self is about to be lost to the other. We shouldn't just do this in terms of some kind of amorous thing. It's, it is amorous. So, uh, he goes on. As spent with speed, her strength and color fled. She reached her father's stream, and sire, she said, if streams have power divine, with changing spell destroy the form by which I please too well. At once upon her limbs a torpor came, a tenuous rhymed, enshreathed her tender frame, her hairs to leaves, her arms to branches past, her feet, but now so swift, were rooted fast, a crown of leaves o'erspread her face above. Fleeing from this other, she suddenly just turns frigid and, and fixed as a defense against the, the pursuing other. And here's what Brady said. The unwelcomed attentions of a god are escaped only by ceasing to be human. Without control over the way their looks affect the eye of the god, they retreat into immobility and non-humanity. Daphne exhibits a hysterical symptom as a way of warding off this influence that's breaking in on her. So Browdy says, uh, for these nymphs and Ovid, their beauty is an intolerable burden. Endlessly running away from their potential rapist, their only escape is to be able to run no more, to be fixed. And then he says the poles of Ovid's mythology are incessant motion and eternal stasis, and there's nothing in between. Okay, let me turn back now to Ovid and think about what he's done. My premise, of course, is that he's described a situation that is analogous to our own, a world in which what was once a transcendent reality, the reality of the Olympians, has ceased to be transcendent, and now there's this commingling of the Olympians and the mortals, the crossing of the line between the sacred and the profane. And what ha what the, the chief symptom of that is soap opera is a lot of is a lot of emotional entanglement 
that is shot through with a kind of religiosity gone amuck, turning each other into idols and demons and and uh, and so on. The kind of stuff you get when you turn on the AM radio. Uh, so, here's what Browdy says. The kinds of stories Ovid tells indicates his crucial place in the history of fame. In direct contrast with Virgil's pageant of the necessary interplay of gods and humans in the fashioning of human history, Ovid depicts them as cruel and ferocious competitors. So the gods and the mortals are now in competition with one another. Hierarchy exists to keep that from happening. You, you know, when, the, of course, the, as always, the quintessential text on on the collapse of hierarchy is the Ulysses speech in Troilus and Cressida. And Ulysses says, when degree is shaken, when, when we untune that string, hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere pugnancy. That goes back to Ovid depicting the gods and humans as being, as Browdy says, in cruel and ferocious competition with one another. So that's the, that's the crisis that comes from the collapse of hierarchy and the collapse of transcendence. And Ovid is depicting that in a mocking way. Uh, Ovid is like so many of us moderns. He's seen through the myth on which the hierarchy is based. But he has no serious appreciation for the catastrophe that is in store for the world if there's no, no transcendence. One of the reasons Ovid is valuable is because he describes the crisis in a way that we can understand psychologically. He describes it in terms of human melodrama, but we all we have to do is scratch the surface and you can see the ontological issue, which is ontological insubstantiality. That's, that's what's uh, really happening here. So earlier I talked about the story of Apollo and Daphne, and I s- suggested that Daphne's response to Apollo's hounding was to was to go was to paralysis psychological paralysis, which is what you might call hysteria type A. I mean, I'm making this up, you know, but just to distinguish it from what I want to talk about now, which is another form of hysteria, the opposite form of hysteria, the hysteria of of uh, the the uh, offensive form of hysteria, which is the outgoing form of hysteria. So now, if we turn to Ovid's version of that. Probably the best example of that would be the story of Arachne. It's a story of the mortals challenging the gods to a contest. Now, this is interesting that it comes in the later stages of Ovid's poem. In the earlier stages, it's the Olympians coming down and, and cavorting with mortals. But then something is awakened. In other words, once the immortals come down off their mountain we recognize we begin to recognize hey they're 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 just like us we thought they were different they had some kind of transcendence vis-a-vis us but now look at prince charles you see it's that kind of it's that kind of realization wait a minute they're just like we are only worse because they can get away with it you know <laughs> and suddenly the whole thing begins to collapse and it breeds nothing but resentment. You know, look at the tabloids in England. It just, it, it, it becomes, I mean, this is what Ovid is. Ovid is the tabloids in England, only he's a great poet. But he's mocking it that same way. Browdy says, 
and this I think is a very important point. He says the God rapes in the Metamorphoses gradually evolve into stories in which human beings try to make inroads on godlike immortality. So it begins with the Olympians coming down to earth and and cavorting with the mortals. And then that causes the mortals to realize, hey, you know, there's really no fundamental difference. And therefore, I want to be one myself. And all I have to do is be better at whatever they're supposed to be good at than they are. And then I'll be one. And then you have the crisis. And see, Gerard makes an interesting point here, which is that appeals to our sense of a meritocracy, right? Well, we, should, we, we, we shouldn't just have anybody. It shouldn't be just uh, your, your genealogy that puts you up on Olympus. It ought to be your merit, which appeals to our sense of justice. But the problem is that there's no end to the competition that that generates. Because nobody is ever, ever achieves that position in a way that cannot be challenged, you see? So it's always in question, never settled. It's like being the fastest gun in the West. The poor bastard has to just lean on the bar waiting for the next guy to ride into town. There's no end to it. And the whole point of the hierarchy and transcendence is to put an end to it. So anyway... It starts with the gods, they come down, and pretty soon the mortals realize there's no difference between us and them, and therefore the mortals want to compete. And so an example of that, and there are lots of them in, in Ovid, but a, a classic example of that would be uh, Arachne, and I will, I'll turn to her because, uh, because Browdy has some things to say about that story that are interesting as well. He says, for example, Arachne recounts Ovid in Book 6, is an accomplished weaver, but like so many other characters in the Metamorphoses, she is not content merely to be the best human weaver. She has to be better than the gods. End quote. Now remember, this is a story, Bradley's writing a book about fame, and he says of Alexander, Alexander was the first famous man, and the next sentence is, nothing was ever enough for him. Fame is a false form of ontology, and if we rely on it, ontologically if we substitute fame ontologically for prayer let's not put too fine a point on it <laughs> as our ontological grounding it will, its fundamental insubstantiality will grow the more we try to rely on it so the more we get the more ontologically unstable and insubstantial we become the story of Arachne and Minerva is read piously as, as a story about how Minerva is right. And it's read impiously as a story about how Arachne is right. And we have to read it in another way altogether, in which we see the whole dynamic. We see the melodrama in which both of them got entangled, and you, we see that, that Arachne was just as screwed up as Minerva, but what happened is they fell into this so it's not a story. Ovid is telling us a story about good guys and bad guys, but it's not a story about good guys and bad. Guys. It's a story about the. It's a story about the crisis and how everybody gets caught up in it. You know, and once you once there's no transcendent reference point, it's just going to be a food fight. Okay, this is a story about it. Arachne is a story about it. 
She now wants to compete. She wants to be the best. No so the point is not, we, we like to think, we flatter ourselves, oh, well, this is just, this is just, uh, this is just the, uh, uh, the, the urge for excellence. It's not the urge for excellence. Remember last week I, I quoted from this rock music star, Courtney Love, and she has a song in which she says, I want to be the girl with the most cake. Now, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean I want, I want a cake this big, or I want a cake as big as this table, or I want a truckload of cake? Does, is there, does it mean... No. It just means I want whatever the, the person who has the most cake has plus a little more, because I want... In other words, it's pure mimesis. It doesn't have to do with cake at all. It has to do with that other person. So the real focus of attention is the other, not the cake. But we're all Freudians. We all think that it has to do with the object. It doesn't. It has to do with the model, the mimetic influence of the other. So she says, I want... The, Courtney Love says, I want to be the girl with the most cake. Arachne says, I want to be better than the, the most famous figure in the world, who happens to be a goddess, Minerva. She's, she's the goddess of weaving. So she's, by definition, the best. I want to be better than she is. Does that mean she wants to produce something that's exquisite in some objective sense? No. All, it doesn't have to be exquisite. It just has to be whatever Minerva's is plus one. You see? So it's entirely vis-a-vis -vis Minerva and not vis-a-vis -vis art or merit. You see what I'm saying? Okay. A classic example, again, I go back to something we talked about before, just to put Arachne in perspective. Uh, is Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia, I'm, I've, I, in a sense, I've grown fond of Camille Paglia. <laughs> she's, a, she's, a, um, she's an admitted pagan, and a, uh, in a sense, she's, she's a hysteric who is, uh, who's offering herself as, a, as an example for us all. She speaks in her latest book of her meteoric rise, and she says... Quote, I was a parallel phenomenon to businessman-turned-politician Ross Perot and radio personalities Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern with their gigantic nationwide following. So, first of all, she compares herself to these people. And notice what the measure of all of this is. Gigantic nationwide following finally comes to fame. When Arachne says, I want to be better than Minerva, if somebody said, sure, Granted, your wish is granted. You'll be better than Minerva. You'll be the only person who knows that. Nobody else will know it. But all you want to do is be better than her, right? Okay, you're better than she is. We're just not going to tell anybody. The deal's off. The deal's off, you see. That's not what it's about. It's not about art. It's not about excellence. It's about beating Minerva, you see. And so... Gigantic nationwide followings. Anyway, you can see the rival model relationship when, when uh, Camille Paglia says, I'm like Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh and those Ross Perot. When, she, when her model rival becomes the same sex, see, notice that Ross Perot, Rush Limbaugh, and Howard Stern are males. There's enough of a distinction there to keep it from collapsing into its worst kind of stuff. 
But now, once you erase that and the model rival becomes the same gender, then you have something in another category altogether. Camille Paglia says, I'm the Susan Sontag of the 90s. I'm her worst nightmare. I've been chasing that bitch for 25 years and I've finally passed her. You see what I mean? But get this, and this, but then she says, first of all, she says, Sontag's writing compared to mine is bleak, boring, pedestrian, clumsy, wobbly, and corny. <laughs> the only problem, she said, is that Sontag has exhibited, quote, absolutely no awareness that I have written any books at all or that she has ever seen them even through a telescope, end quote. <laughs> So this is like Arachne saying, okay, sure, you can be the best, just nobody's going to know about it. Well, maybe everybody will know about it, but Minerva won't know about it. The deal's off. <laughs> Minerva has to know about it. You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> well, this is funny, but this is the reason I'm mentioning this is because it's a modern parallel. It's exactly the situation we're in. It's the, it's the thinking of the underground man in Dostoevsky. You know, the underground man wants that officer that bumped into him and that insulted him. He wants that officer to recognize him as an equal, if not a superior. And his whole life is consumed by getting him to recognize that. Uh, and it's pure mimesis. It has nothing to do with anything other than uh, bettering the, the other. Okay. <clears throat> now, here, so I want to tell the story, as Ovid tells the story of Minerva and Arachne, to see this, the other kind of hysteria, which is so typical of the modern world. And again, I keep having to say this I've, because I want to make sure we understand the relationship between this kind of craziness and the collapse of transcendence because that's what's involved here. It's what happens when... You see, when there's a system of transcendence in place, one would never think of competing with the gods. They, they live in another world. One simply worships them, prays to them, asks for their, for their blessings. One, Minerva, Arachne would go in to the temple of Minerva and pray that Minerva would inspire her to create beautiful weavings, you see. But she would never say, well, I think I'm going to do better than you. That's, so what we're talking about here is the collapse of hierarchy. By the way, maybe I'll mention this later, but I'm, last week I mentioned this, this uh, uh, editorial meeting. This comes out in Richard Rodriguez's uh, uh, send-up of, the, of these... Uh, of these uh, uh, English expatriates that, that, according to him, have taken over the literary scene in New York uh, with their cynicism and so on. And he talks about one of them whose name uh, is um, Hitchens. And Hitchens, in, in a piece he wrote, a scathing piece about uh, what a phony Mother Teresa was, uh, <laughs> has a story about what they used to do when he worked for this rag called the Private Eye. And Hitchens says, well... The, the guy who ran the show there, whose, whose name was uh, Claude Coburn, he said Cla Claude Coburn would sit the, the hacks and satirists down and he'd say, okay, who does anybody think is wonderful? Who gets a free ride? And somebody would venture a name like Sh Albert Schweitzer. And he'd say, let's go after Schweitzer. You see? Well, it's, it's, the same kind, it's the same disease. Let's tear everything down so that nothing stands taller than we do. That reminds me of the third and last story I want to talk about from Ovid. Remember that one. I, nothing stands taller than we do. Anyway. Rowdy says, <clears throat> Minerva 
and here she's disguised as an old woman. Minerva weaves a tapestry of the Olympian family of gods, including herself, placing in the four corners scenes from other ill-fated attempts of humans to compete with gods, as a little reminder of, of what happens. Meanwhile, Arachne weaves together the many stories that portray the gods as devious schemers in, interested primarily in sex. So the challenge is there. Minerva takes the shuttle out of Arachne's hand and begin, begins to beat her with it, beats her into insensibility, and she runs off and hangs herself. And then, typical of the gods in Ovid, she has second thoughts, so she turns her into a spider, so she can weave for all eternity, ha both hang and weave for all eternity. You see? Well, th so there's suicide here. We shouldn't miss the fact that there's suicide here. On the other hand, one wonders at the origin of this myth. I wonder if there's a real corpse. And my guess is there is. And my guess is that it wasn't a suicide. At the origin of this myth. Nevertheless, Browdy says, Minerva not only has the power, she wants the praise as well. She wants the praise as well. So now the gods are competing for fame with the mortals. See, everybody has to compete for it. Now this is Im important because this comes back to the question is of, of who is original. You see, who is the who is the unmoved mover here? This is the this is the pride of the system because nobody wants to say I'm a disciple or I'm a I'm an apprentice. I'm an understudy because that's an insult in this world of scandal. One wants to say, I'm the original, you're, the, you're copying me. I'm the model, you're the imitator. I'm not the imitator. You see, and that's what's at stake here. Because if, if Arachne wins the contest, then what's Minerva to say? She has to say, if you're the best, I'm not as good. And when do you offer classes? You know? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I've got to learn from you. Well, uh, Browdy says, quote, Minerva's anger is therefore directed specifically against Arachne's grandest assertion, her self-sufficiency. Arachne refuses even metaphorically to say her skill comes from the goddess. And when the disguised Minerva chides her for seeking fame beyond the share of mortals, she scorns the old woman's advice and says, and this is from the A.E. Watts translation, I take my own advice and think it's sound. Yours, be assured, will leave me as it found. It sounds like Frank Sinatra, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I did it my way. I'm not following anybody. I don't take your advice. And Browdy says this, Her punishment is therefore to be turned even further toward herself, her talent doomed to fruitless and repetitive originality. Well, we moderns have to swallow hard, you see. The punishment is, because there's, there's something that, there's a psychological verisimilitude here, it seems to me, between what uh, Ovid is describing and the modern condition. Because like Arachne, we say, I'm sorry, I don't have a model, I'm doing it my own way, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, see, I'm autonomous. And the punishment for that presumption 
Now, I'm not... Forget the fact that Minerva is a fiction and a, and a uh, despicable one at that. Nevertheless, psychologically, the punishment for that presumption is to be turned in on oneself and to be condemned to what Browdy brilliantly calls fruitless and repetitive originality. <laughs> I think that's marvelous. Fruitless and repetitive originality. And I, I would say, look at modern art generally and this... It, it wasn't... Back in ages past, one could... An, an artist would be an understudy for 20 years and would copy the master's works, you know, and try to learn the line and the technique and then develop to a place where, well, then he could do it on his own. That idea now is such an absolute, so offensive, the idea that you would do that. I mean, I used to go, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived near the San Francisco Art Institute and I used to go there for events every once in a while. And... The, you know, the next 18-year-old in the door would be absolutely offended by the idea that he or she, uh, if somebody came up and said, oh, well, that, that looks like you're, you're uh, you know, following Demon Corn or something. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, the idea of any kind of copying is the worst insult, you see. And so one is condemned to fruitless and repetitive originality. Browdy says of Arachne, for all her self-sufficiency... She cannot be self-satisfied. She must compete with the unrivaled. Only then, she thinks, will she be truly content. She must compete with the unrivaled. And this is when the need for fame, the quest for fame, the hunger for fame gets to a certain place. It becomes so purely metaphysical that it, nothing can satisfy her. She must compete with the unrivaled. And so Browdy says, such hunger for fame appears in all its nakedness in a story not about an artist who phrases her assertion in the terms of her art, but someone who asserts himself for no special reason at all. And this is a, a character in, uh, in Ovid whose name is Erisicton. And Browdy says, this insatiable aspirant, Erisicton, is a scorner of the gods who breaks into the sacred grove of Ceres, the goddess of earthly plenty and fertility, and chops down her largest tree for no reason. This is, I said, bear it in mind, this is like the, the editorial meeting at the private eye where they sit around and say, who, who gets a free ride? Oh, Albert Schweitzer. Well, let's go get Schweitzer. This that kind of spirit. He just sneaks into the grove of the goddess Ceres and cuts down her tallest tree. And why? Because it's going to make him famous. I want to conclude with Erisichthon because it is his desperate and nihilistic quest for fame that brings out another aspect and the most powerful aspect of the ontological crisis of our time. <clears throat> In a salient feature of which is, is this whole aberration around fame. 15 minutes, everybody gets 15 minutes, it doesn't mean anything... So celebrity is somebody who's famous for being well-known and so on. The ontological emptiness of the whole enterprise is declaring itself. What happens with Erisichthon is that the priestess of the, of the temple of Ceres comes to the goddess and says, this guy did this. He chopped down the tallest tree in our grove. 
and therefore you have to do something about it. And Ceres sends the priestess as a messenger to the, to the, to the goddess of famine. Now Ceres is the goddess of abundance and the goddess of famine. They can never have direct contact. They always have to send an email message or something because they're totally opposite, you see. But she goes to her and she says, fine, uh, I'll punish him. So famine goes to punish the quest for fame. And this, as we'll show in a minute, is a very interesting telling point. And Browdy says, um, Famine agrees, flies through the air to the bedroom of Erisichthon, crawls inside him, and fills his body with a hunger that can never be satisfied. Now this is punishment for a wild, nihilistic, desperate quest for ontological substantiation using fame. You see what I'm trying to say? It's the desperate need to, for ontological substantiation which has resorted to some cheap and nihilistic way of achieving fame to, to substantiate itself. So famine gets inside of Erisichthon. And here's what Ovid says in the Watts translation. As her essence through his organs sped, their emptiness and appetite were spread. With illimitable lust he burned, and asking for food from land and sea and air, complained of hunger when the food was there. And craving meal on meal a city's store, he ate a nation's food and asked for more. All feasting left his appetite uncloyed. Food made him feed, and feeding made him void. And there you have the ultimate nihilistic, desperate, potentially suicidal end of the quest for ontological grounding using fame. And it reminds one of Shakespeare talking about the universal wolf who at last eats up himself. Browdy says, Finally, Erisichthon turns his ravenous hunger on his own body and consumes himself. Like the ambition of the public man, Erisichthon's assertion against Ceres, the goddess of earth and fertility, is empty of everything but the urge to cut down anything that presumes to be taller than he is. End quote. You see, the, this is the leveling. No, no transcendence. The, 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 the contempt and resentment for anything that stands out. Let's go get Schweitzer. You see, this kind of attitude. Uh, anything that might, that might uh, uh, put me in a lesser position, it becomes an offense. Uh, so this is, Erisichthon experiences what the title of our little course has been, which is the famished craving. The more it's satisfied, the more famished it becomes. I just want to pick up on one thing, and I'm just about finished here. Brady uh, makes a, a point, which is made elsewhere, uh, namely this, quote, In the context of the many other combats with the gods in the Metamorphoses, the famine, parentheses fames in Latin, that Erasicton uh, gets is the image of the fame, parentheses fama, that he seeks. So you have two words, famine, famis, and fame, fama. And 
Braddy says, the verbal echo winds its way through the lines of Ovid's story to emphasize the emptiness of spirit that the urge for fame implies. It is a wordplay that will be made even more explicit in Christian writers like St. Augustine, who interpret the hunger as an emptiness longing to be filled, not with fame, but with God. And so then you come back to the question of transcendence. And, and to Augustine's great insight that we are restless until we rest in thee. Two last little readings. One is from the philosopher Gabriel Marcel, and I've quoted this many times. And Marcel speaks of the necessary, for the Christian, the necessary subordination of the self to a superior reality, a reality at my deepest level more truly me than I am myself a subordination that breaks down, according to Marcel, the tension between the self and other. So that's another form of transcendence. It's not the old sacred form of transcendence, but it's the form of transcendence that, it's, that is at the heart of the Christian economy. And finally, from Walter Casper, the German theologian, who in an essay on the mystery of personality uh, says this, personality is always relational. One cannot autonomy and personality are are mutually exclusive terms. The nature of personality is relationship. You see, so to talk of persons is to talk of relationships. And the question is, when does one become a person? You see, it's not a question of individuality. It's not a question of identity. It's a question of becoming a person. And only in relationship. So, uh, so Casper says that it's always towards the other. Personality is always towards the other. And he says because of its dynamic ordering in the totality of being, the person cannot find full satisfaction in anything finite, in any finite values, whether material or spiritual, nor even in finite persons. Because this, at the heart of the person, is something religious. It's a longing for the other that can never be satisfied with anything finite, even a finite other. It cannot be. And the kind of melodrama that Minerva and Arachne and Ceres and Erisichthon and Daphne and Apollo get into is the kind of melodrama that happens when we try to satisfy that longing purely in the human realm. So Casper says, this accounts for the restless and unquiet constant movement and self-transcending of mankind. The human person can reach definitive fulfillment only if it encounters a person who is infinite not only in its intentional claims on reality, but in its real being. That is, only if it encounters an absolute person. And Casper is saying this is why we understand in the Judeo-Christian tradition that God is a person. That's not, an, that's not anthropomorphizing God. That's saying that the ultimate reality is personal reality. 
but only in relationship to that ultimately supreme, tran supremely transcendent person do we become persons. Otherwise, the, 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 the uh, approximate form of personality that we develop is always competitive and vis-a-vis -vis and problematic and conditional, conditioned upon the outcome of the, of the little melodrama, you see. Always dependent upon the melodrama. And so to have some kind of personality that is not a social construct requires the relationship to an ultimately transcendent person. Today's session may be the last session or the next to last session in a series that went a, a, a little bit longer than we thought was going to go. Or... It may be the first session in a series <laughs> that hasn't quite come into focus yet. I can't decide where we are. So I offer it to you as, uh, as some kind of segue, as they say, from uh, the theme of, of the famished craving, which is a, a, an attempt to look at the modern psychological problem, which is really the modern ontological problem. I think this is the this is the point we have misinterpreted uh, uh, the modern problem and thought of it as a psychological problem for a hundred years and it's not a psychological pro I mean it it it, it, it the, the ontological problem produces all kinds of psychological anomalies and psychological uh, distress but ultimately the problem is an ontological problem so I think we're now engaged in a reinterpretation of what the last hundred years uh, has meant. And so I want to continue with that. And, and so what we did in this series is we looked at fame, which is, un which is in our world experiencing a kind of crazy perversion <clears throat> uh, who's who, the, the spokesman for whom is Andy Warhol. 15 minutes, everybody gets 15 minutes. Uh, so we try to look at fame and the strangeness of fame in our time as a symptom of the deeper crisis. And I'm still following along that. That's what I'm going to talk about today. But, it, but now we'll be moving into uh, uh, another approach to the same problem. Uh, so let's see. So we have, <clears throat> we ha actually have three. I've been using two, but... Of course, we actually have three of these terms that have become our, our leitmotifs in this series. One is Gabriel Marcel's observation that we moderns have lost our ontological mooring. The second is Henri de Lubac's observation that we suffer from a lack of ontological density. Those two are obviously related. And the third is René Girard's discussion of the modern problem in terms of what he calls ontological sickness. And he uses that term especially when he speaks of Dostoevsky and especially of the underground man in Notes from Underground, the ontological sickness. Okay, so let me go back and pick up on a few things. And and today, is it's going to be rambling again. I'm going to touch on a number of things. I'm going to end up 
talking about old Latin poets and Caligula, the late Roman emperor, and and Nero, and and Anais Nin, and Augustine, and God knows what else. So it's going to be kind of a ranging discussion. In truth, I'm trying to tie up a few things here before we move on. And when we move on, we're probably not going to have Browdy's text to rely upon, and he's offered us some things that are really worth noting in terms of helping us understand our own condition. For example, Browdy spoke of the tension between Ovid, the Roman writer, and Caesar Augustus. And he puts it this way, and this is the way it's often been, this is the way Ovid articulated and also the way it's been uh, commented upon by others. Browdy says, in a sense, Ovid becomes a national poet whose works and even way of life are an implicit attack on most of the professed national values. His underlying theme is that not Roma but Amor conquers all. And, you know, Roma is the name for Rome and Amor is simply the, the name reversed. And so Ovid and others were keen to pick up on the irony involved in that that it's Amor and not Roma. Now, the tension between Amor and Roma is all over the place in the ancient world and in the modern world. Shakespeare explores it all the time. For example, in Troilus and Cressida, most, most precisely probably in, in uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Amor and Roma, there they are. Uh, Antony and Caesar, you see. So, for Ovid, erotic desires are a more vital and authentic alternative to the desire for fame, which the Romans call ambition, ambitio, which literally means to go around canvassing for votes. Ambitio is, etymologically, has to do with, with attracting the approval of others. And the initial reaction to this was it's inauthentic and what is authentic the authentic alternative to it is amor or in the greek version eros for rome fame roman fame remember when we talked about virgil there's there's good fame that's roman fame and then there's there's unholy fame and that's the kind of fame that is gossip and scandal and the breakdown of all social conventions and finally crisis and chaos. Uh, but Roman fame is good fame. In the Roman world, fame of the kind that Virgil extolled worked the way capitalism is supposed to work. That is to say, it turned a vice into a virtue. You know how capitalism is? Capitalism, the, the premise of capitalism is that if everybody is greedy, this is not entirely true, by the way. This gets blamed on Adam Smith. But Adam Smith was a moral philosopher who, who understood things much better than we think when we now blame all this on him. But in any event, uh, the idea in capitalism is if everybody is greedy, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, that somehow it'll all accumulate and it'll be a virtue. And... In the, in the Roman world, fame worked like that. That is to say, to the extent that everybody was in the business of trying to get others to notice them with approval, 
the whole society could go to hell. But if you could get that, if you could channel that, see, which is what capitalism tries to do with our greed, if you could channel that, you could, you could produce something truly impressive like the Roman Empire. So you say, okay, if you want to get those approving glances, you behave in this, that, and the other way. You become a very great general. By the way, as you can readily imagine, most of the paths to this, uh, to this fame were uh, exclusively male uh, admission. But in any event, what we're looking at is the structure. So uh, you, you become a general, a statesman, uh, perhaps a poet, but that then it becomes a little slippery, but I'll get into that in a second. In any event, it's a form of socializing a vice in order to make it into a virtue. And Virgil seems to have understood that. Now, Ovid and others, and Ovid has, has many, many descendants. Almost everybody in the modern world would be Ovid's descendant. Uh, that is to say, people who... who think that Eros is a more vital and authentic alternative form of desire than the quest, than ambition. You see what I mean? Most people today would say that. It's in, it's in the atmosphere. Erotic desire is a more vital and authentic form of desire than the desire for recognition. And the question, of course, is whether or not those two forms of desire represent re a real alternative uh, or not. Eros involves a privatizing of desire in the same way that, that Virgilian fame involves a socializing of desire. What we have to notice about Eros, and I've talked about this before, but the thing you have to notice about Eros is that it is not a synonym for sexual ardor or for affection. The operating principle in Eros is delusion brought on by the unscrupulous antics of the god, Amor or Eros, who shoots little arrows in whichever direction he feels like it. These two people don't love each other until the arrow hits or until the love potion is, is consumed. But this, this is mediated, so there's always, in the background of an erotic entanglement, a, a mediator. So it's not just love at first sight, after all. There may be love at first sight, but I'm saying when we, we should make this distinction. It's perfectly natural for, for two people to meet and fall in love and become interested in each other. But when we say erotic, we should realize we're talking about triangulation. We're talking about a mediated form of intoxication. And so Ovid begins his break with the old Roman system by saying that amor is, is, the, uh, is the better form of desire. And Browdy says, quote, in the 12th century, Ovid will be rediscovered by French poets and lovers seeking to create a world of love in contrast to the wars and politics that had overtaken medieval Christianity. Ovid's stories of trans transformation will be given innumerable interpretations in the terminology of Christian love. So here you have the bringing back in of the erotic, Christianizing the erotic, 
and bringing it back in. Now, there's one can overreact to this event, and I don't know exactly how best to react to it. I think it's probably true that even erotic uh, entanglements can lead to genuine love, even agapeic love. So one doesn't want to uh, weed out the erotic too quickly. You see what I'm saying? One has to have a a uh, a Catholic small c Catholic attitude. I think is more appropriate to the situation than a puritanical one. Nevertheless, some some caution is in order, no doubt, as we are as we are finding out in spades in our in our time. The idea that there's a different that that see Browdy says uh, the t t French of the 12th century. This this is the troubadour tradition. The uh, the the uh, the tradition of passionate romance about which Denis de Rougemont has written uh, so perceptively in Love in the Western World. Uh, the idea was that the alternative at the popular level, the alternative to politics and war is amour or eros. But in fact, as de Rougemont shows convincingly, they're always tangled up together. They always have been. The, the, uh, Aphrodite is the sister of Mars. They come, it's a matched set, you see. So when, for example, uh, my contemporaries 30 years ago said, make love, not war, we were absolutely convinced we were talking about something that was two different uh, universes. But it's not because, if we're talking about Eros, it's not, of course. So the real alternative to the desire of ambitio or ambition is Christian conversion and agape. That is to say, what Augustine said, we are restless until we rest in thee. The pseudo-alternative is the eroticizing of desire and the turning of the life of ambition into the life of libido. So, so that's the background for what I'm going to do. That, now, just, just take that and set it on the side. I, that was one discussion. End of discussion. I'm going to talk about something else. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about something else altogether. And what I'm about to talk about and what I just talked about, I hope will come in. But if I try to make a connection right now, I don't think I, we could be here all day. I'd like to talk about... I'm just following Browdy's order of things. He talks about Horus next. And Horus is an example of the fact that poets began to fall out with the famous people whom it was their job to make famous. In other words, poets began to recognize something about the mechanism by which fame was generated. They realized that the famous ones, and in the most famous, of course, you have the divine ones because the ultimate in fame is is divinization. These transcendent ones, false, false transcendents, but nevertheless socially transcendent ones, could only be so as a result of the activities of the poet. And you, as you might expect, this poet was the first one to notice that this was so. 
And immediately the poet began to realize that he had a very important and powerful vocation. Horace is the poet who begins, who seems to recognize that most clearly. It's in Virgil, I think, strongly as well. But, uh, but Virgil was still more or less content with the, the assigned task. With Horace and some other poets, you begin to, to have the poet bristling a little bit. And what's happening, really, is that the poet is beginning to become a little bit jealous of the famous ones uh, whom it is his task to make famous and keep famous. In other words, you have the kind of slippage that Shakespeare talks about in Troilus and Cressida where when Ulysses says the uh, he one step below begins to envy the one above and so on and the whole thing begins to unravel. So Horace is the first poet to begin to talk about the poetic activity as being driven by vates. So we have the word, the vatic voice of the poet. And the word, word vates means, uh, it's a sacred, sacred term. It means someone who is in touch with the, the sacred oracle someone who knows that realm. He's, a, he's, he's an ambassador to the realm of the sacred, and he can come back with this sacrality, and then he can endow those whose songs he sings with sacred status. So it was Horace's way of recognizing his role in all of this. And Browdy says two things that are relevant here. First of all, he says, it is Horace who has most powerfully developed the image of the poet as an outsider who dispenses fame. And then he says, military and political action may make things happen, but poetry ensures that they are remembered. Nothing is famous without being sung, writes Horace. Without such poets, public men quickly turn to dust. And then Browdy quotes four lines from Horace, uh, which are the following. Many heroes lived before Agamemnon, but all were unwept and unknown, weighed down by the long night, because they lacked a sacred bard. So Horace begins to realize that he has a role. Now, ultimately, what is this role? Well, first of all, he's singing of the great heroes. And the great and the task of the heroes, as I said, we go, this goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of human culture. And if you remember, that is the crowd and its victim. And the victim is the first possessor of sacred status. And he or she possesses it for a flash right before uh, he's killed by the mob, and then the mob turns the corpse of the victim into its sacred shrine and develops the myth about the sacrality of the victim and so on. However, if the victim can forestall that long enough to take advantage of the prestige that all that attention has bestowed upon him, he can become the king, what we call king. It wouldn't have been a king in the first instance. He can become the prestigious figure. He can become God on earth, that is to say, a God who's a, a, a figure whose, whose divine status is experienced while still living. In other words, his divine status is experienced while still living 
but usually it lasts just for a second before he's killed. If he can forestall that, he can take power, and then he can keep power if he can effectively transfer the sacrificial appetite to another victim, a surrogate victim. So he becomes the hero, king, shaman, high priest by becoming the divine executioner, the sacred executioner. And when the poets sing of the great ones, what do they sing of? They sing of Aeneas killing Turnus, finally. You see, they sing of the great, the great general conquering the world. They sing of conquering the world uh, for reasons that have been sacralized. So they always sing of the divine executioner, the sacred executioner. So you have this, and you see, this is what, this is what uh, Horace is beginning to understand. Uh, the heroes do these things, but there has to be this voice, which is the mediator of public opinion. And this voice is the one that, that awakens this ardor and admiration and adulation on the part of the public, which is really the secret to, to social transcendence. It's a secret to, to uh, divinization uh, and all the rest of it. Well, once the poets begin to understand the mechanism a little bit, and that's the way you could speak of this, Horace begins to see what's going on. He realizes that instead of just coming on the scene and beginning to write these great glowing verses about the heroic ones, he comes on the scene and he realizes if I don't take pen in hand, they won't be famous. I'm an important part of this. In other words, this is not something that comes like a lightning bolt out of the sky. This is something that comes out of the human situation. You see, that's, he's really seeing the mythic apparatus because he's such a key figure in it. Having seen it, he then realizes that the distinction between himself and the hero is only relative. That the, the hero, however great his deeds might have been, is not going to achieve the status unless the poet sings. And the poet then, it doesn't take long for the poet to think, you know, I could sing about myself probably. You know? It's, in other words, it, the, 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 pro, the problem of envy comes in, to some extent, I guess, and you get something more or less, at least structurally equivalent to the relationship between Arachne and Minerva. Instead of Arachne, who's a weaver, giving praise to Minerva and giving her credit for inspiring her to weave nice uh, weavings, she says, I want to be Minerva. I want to be better than Minerva, you see? So you get the poets who begin to make certain sacred claims on their own behalf. Now, that's in all the poetry, the poets appeal to the muses and so on to inspire them. That, and, and so you get a little bit of that in every, in every uh, early poetic uh, genre. Uh, but here I think you get something else, which is a competition between the emperor and his and his speechwriters. Or, yeah, I mean, that's one way I put it. Well, th so that's, now that's one issue. Now this, now I want to tie it back in, in a certain sense, with the first thing I talked about. Browdy says this about Horace. Quote, throughout his poems, Horace plays 
on the various associations of the Latin word liber, which means not only free, but also book, as well as being the name of the Roman equivalent of Dionysus, the god of wine in whose honor the poet drinks and speaks with free inspiration. Now this is absolutely fascinating, don't you think? Liber is a word which means free, book, and Dionysus. Now, what are we to make of this? Dionysus, of course, the freedom here is the freedom of intoxication. We all know a couple of glasses of wine and we're convinced that we're a lot freer than we were before we had them. <laughs> In other words, there is what, uh, there is a, there, the experience of liberation, you see, from the libation uh, is, uh, is, is a common experience whether it has any grounding. You see, a couple of more glasses to, to, keep, to get a little more liberated, and pretty soon you're a total slave. But in any event, Liber means freedom, book, and Dionysus. 